Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, And go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Father in heaven, thank you for these words spoken so long ago and yet so relevant for our lives today. Please speak speak to us this morning, Lord. Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts. Lord, we want you to be alive in us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to trust, faith to believe, faith to obey. Work in our hearts this morning, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Comedian Jeff Foxworthy has built a successful career finishing the statement, you might be a redneck if. Here are a few examples of his humor. You might be a redneck if... You consider a set of matching luggage to be two shopping bags from the same store. Or you think the last words of the Star Spangled Banner are, Gentlemen, start your engines. You might be a redneck if you think a stock tip is advice on worming your hogs. Or you've been married three times and still have the same in-laws. Or you might be a redneck if you think Taco Bell is the Mexican phone company. You get the idea. 
Well, this morning, I'd like to begin by finishing a different sentence. You might be a Pharisee if. You might be a Pharisee if you consider your own church's membership role the Lamb's Book of Life. Or you believe suspicion is a spiritual gift and that misery is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or that you might, you might be a Pharisee if every time something changes you say the old way was better. Or you believe the Lord has given you the ministry of correcting other people. Or you might be a Pharisee if you're disgusted by the moral filth that is playing on your own DVD player. Or you limit your bar hopping on Saturday night so you won't be late for usher duty on Sunday morning. Or you might be a Pharisee if you forbid your kids from playing violent video games while you watch the Rambo Marathon on television. Or you despise the dirty language in rap music, but the four-letter words Blake Shelton uses in his lyrics just add color. Or you might be a Pharisee if you worry about your teenage daughter sleeping around on the weekends you go out of town with your male friend. Or you might be a Pharisee if you preach a sermon on Phariseeism and don't admit the same warnings apply to you. We all might be a Pharisee. The big verse in this morning's passage is verse 20. What Jesus utters in this verse has the effect of a stun gun. It tases us with truth. Jesus stops His disciples in their tracks and makes them reevaluate everything. Jesus' words in verse 20 hit like a thunderclap. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Actually, if you were charting the Sermon on the Mount on a graph, chapter 5, verse 20 would be the summit, the peak of the curve. This verse is the summation of all the sermon. And this was a staggering statement in the ears of the people who heard Jesus that day. For in their minds, no one was as righteous, no one as holy as a Pharisee. The Jews in Jesus' day had a saying, if only two people were allowed into heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. Both the scribes and the Pharisees were Jews who majored on God's law. Both these groups were in the business of legalism. You see, the scribes, they were the handlers of the text. They copied it and studied it, and interpreted it, and they were meticulous in their handling of it. They invested years in painstaking labor to copy the Old Testament Scriptures. They fashioned themselves as legal experts. They were the authorities on what the law said. The Pharisees, they applied the law to life. They were a Jewish sect renowned for their zeal and their disciplined lifestyle. The Pharisees, they were legalists on steroids. You see, the Jews read in the Bible that they were forbidden to work on the Sabbath. But what constitutes work? Well, they came up with all kinds of definitions. If you carried a load on the Sabbath day, that was work. But then again, how heavy is a load? And oh, they had an answer. In fact, it was written, a load is equal to the weight of a fig. 
enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small part of the body, water enough to moisten an eye patch, paper enough to write a note, ink enough to write two letters, a reed big enough to make a pen. Who thinks these thoughts? Anything equal to the list above or a fraction heavier, and it was sinful to carry. Some zealous Pharisees said you were carrying a load and thus sinning if you wore false teeth on the Sabbath, or if you strapped on your artificial leg, or if you picked up a child on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees also felt it was work to heal on the Sabbath day. Oh, you could keep a sick person or an injured person from getting worse, but you couldn't do anything to promote their healing or improve their condition. To the Pharisees, it was kosher to spit on the Sabbath day, just as long as you didn't scuff the spit with your sandal. Then you would be plowing the ground. You would be working when you should be resting. And on and on it went. Rules to explain the rules. Endless regulations on top of endless regulations. You know, it's been said of America's legal system, we have 35 million laws trying to enforce Ten Commandments. And as for the Pharisees, that was literally no exaggeration. And here was their problem. Their zeal for the law, their will to obey, was only about outward compliance. See, they were into right actions but ignored right attitudes. Oh, no one was better at keeping the letter of the law than the Pharisees, but they had lost touch with the spirit of the law. They were stringent in interpreting its words, but totally out of touch with the intent of those words. Reminds me of Matthew 26, verse 41. That verse reads, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. A group of linguists, they designed a computer program to translate English into Russian. But when Matthew 26, verse 41 was inputted, the Russian translation came out as follows. The whiskey is agreeable, but the meat has gone bad. Well, that might be a literal wooden translation of the phrase, but it's miles away from what that verse actually means. And this is what happened to the Pharisees' interpretation. They understood God's law in a stilted, mechanical manner, but they lost touch with the intent, the essence of what God was saying to them. They could parse terms and grammar, but they failed to discern God's heart. In Exodus 34, verse 27, when the law was first given to Moses, God told him, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Notice God's covenant with Israel wasn't just based on the literal words. It was according to the original intent, the heart behind those words. The Amplified Version renders Exodus 34, verse 27, Write these words, for after the purpose and character of these words, I have made a covenant with you. Over the centuries, the Jews held tenaciously to the letter of the law, the words. But it didn't take them long to lose touch with the tenor of the law, its intent, its heart. 
I mean, it's like recalling the lyrics but forgetting the tune. I mean, you can have all the right words, but if you don't know the melody, how can you be said to be singing the song? It's interesting, the very winsome way that Jesus lived, the loving words that he spoke were so contrary to what the people saw and heard from the Pharisees, it tempted them to think that Jesus might be against the law, the law that they stood for. The Pharisees were so dry, their deeds so sterile. How could the two fruits come from the same tree? I mean, you saw Jesus. Wow, he was, he was full of love. He was full of joy. You saw all of the happiness that he got from the things of God. His life was a dance. And then you saw the Pharisees toiling and trudging and laboring in pursuit of God. Their life was a drudgery. How could the two be serving the same God? And this is why Jesus makes clear in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus wasn't the enemy of the law. Why would he be? The Old Testament law spoke of him. In Hebrews 10, verse 7, he says, In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. You see, God's law was given to accomplish two purposes. To expose our sin and then to point us to our Savior. Rather than destroy or oppose the law, Jesus came to fulfill its purpose. His life and His death peeled back the onion, so to speak. It got to the heart of what the law intended. On the cross, Jesus displayed the severity of our sin. Realize all that Jesus suffered, you deserved, I deserved. How can we ever see the cross of Christ and not be moved? Isaiah said, He was bruised for our iniquity. He was wounded for our transgressions. Do you feel the point of the cold steel against your flesh? The nails that damaged His innocent wrists and feet, they were meant for us. Everything written in the Old Testament law was intended to culminate at the cross. I've sinned. God is holy. I can't reach God on my own. My sin demands a sacrifice. This is what the Old Testament was about, and it pointed us to Jesus. At the cross, I find forgiveness, and I find righteousness. Hey, I have failed, but Jesus had my back. The stripes on His back now prove it. And I fell. I fell short of what God required. But Jesus rose again. And I now stand in His rightness. His Spirit in me is making up the difference. You see, the law teaches me that I failed and I fell. I sinned and I fell short of God's glory. Yet Jesus forgives me and He makes me right with God. He puts His goodness in me. Jesus didn't come to work against the law. Oh, no. He came to reveal the big picture and to fulfill its true purpose. In fact, he says in verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The jot, or the Hebrew yod, was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looked like our apostrophe. 
A tittle was the smallest stroke on the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It was just a little hook. And Jesus is promising that all of God's word will be fulfilled down to its most smallest, its most minutest details. The Bible can be trusted. You can take God's word to the bank. You can start today drawing on his promises, living by his principles. As Jesus said in John 10, verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus doesn't come to violate the scriptures, but to prove them right. For he says in verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, never contradicted God's intentions. Jesus knew the heart behind the law. Oh, he wasn't against the law. Jesus would never fiddle with a tittle. Nor should we. Jesus just got to the point. He cut to the chase. You see, the Old Testament law consisted not just of Ten Commandments. It actually consisted of 613 commandments. There were 248 positive commandments. Those were the do's. And there were 365 negative commandments, or the don'ts. That means there was a shout not for every day of the year. And Jesus didn't deny any of those commandments. He just understood that all 613 commandments could be boiled down into two. One day a Pharisee, no less, a Pharisee came and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. You remember God wrote the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. The first tablet taught us how to love God. The second tablet how to love our neighbor as ourself. Thus, Moses was right in telling us, take these two tablets, and if you're not feeling better soon, come back and see me. Those two tablets would make all the difference. They would change our lives. In fact, all 613 laws combine to paint a picture of what love looks like. Love for God and love for our brother. The scribes and the Pharisees, both then and now, made religion far too complicated. According to the legalists, the law was nothing but stipulations and regulations. That's what it took to please God. They had more stipulations, more regulations than the IRS tax code. Jesus, though, made it so simple. He said that real righteousness is all about love. Love for God. And love for your neighbor. And this is why Jesus says in verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness is more than just compliance to the law. It's love from your heart. 
Romans 5, verse 5 says of the Christian, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What the scribes and Pharisees tried to manufacture through their performance, Jesus pours out into those who believe in Him by the Holy Spirit. Real righteousness is a gift of God's grace. God puts His love in our hearts. You see, before God expects us to act in loving ways, He tunes our heart to the music. He puts His love in us. The law commands love, but it doesn't impart love. It's through grace that God pours out His love. It's been said, To work and run the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly, then gives me wings. You see, the the Pharisees were like the musician who had the sheet music. He navigates the notes and he keeps the beat, but he plays the piece mechanically. Technically, he's okay, but he lacks emotion. He has no real feeling for the score. He certainly doesn't capture the heart of the music. And it's true in the Christian life. You can play all of the right notes. Morally, technically, you can keep the beat. But if there's no love for God or love for others, if your deeds are all about performance with no passion, you can't really say you've played what the composer intended. There's more to pleasing God than just conformity. So you're a pretty good guy. So you tithe your check, attend your church, mind your own business. You might even drop a 20 in the Salvation Army kettle. You live a good life. You're a good person. You live a good life, but you're not necessarily living the Christian life. You see, the Pharisees, they were good guys. They lived good lives, but it wasn't enough to get them into the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness is a miracle. It's the heart of God planted in the heart of man. Listen to Jesus in verse 21. Here he contrasts real righteousness, his righteousness, with that of the scribes and Pharisees. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Of course, the Pharisees, they had never murdered anyone. They would never think the thought. They were innocent of any sort of bloody, ugly kind of violence. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus says, not so fast. Let's think again. Now notice first, according to Jesus, not all anger is sin. There is a righteous anger. Some anger is justifiable. Hey, Jesus got angry. He got angry at the Jews who were making a buck off God. He tossed over tables and he cleansed out the temple. But when Jesus got angry, it was always for the right reason, at the right time and in the right way. Jesus got angry at the Pharisees when they opposed his healing on the Sabbath. He got mad whenever someone put law above love or ritual above people. But here Jesus speaks of a man who gets angry for his brother without a cause. He points to the proud man who brags that he's never murdered another human. Yet Jesus informs us that in the eyes of God, that unjustified anger 
that's been smoldering in that man's heart is the spiritual equivalent of cold-blooded murder. You see, how can you be so proud that you haven't done the deed while the seed is still growing inside you? So you've never pulled the trigger. We'll find no powder residue or metal filings on your hands. But your anger has blown up at your wife and kids. If every angry outburst had murdered someone, your morning commute this past week would have resulted in a killing spree. Here Jesus confronts us all with a startling truth that beneath our veneer of respectability, underneath our fear of punishment, there looks a, lurks a seed of anger that if ever allowed to blossom fully would turn violent. We'd end up in a fist fight. We'd strangle someone. You see, at the core of man's evil heart, there's not much difference between the syrupy, sweet Sunday school teacher and the sinister serial killer. It's shocking to consider, but there's a little bit of Ted Bundy in all of us. Reminds me of the man who was bitten by a dog. The doctor informed the victim that he had rabies. Well, immediately the man pulled out a piece of paper and he started to write. The doctor said, oh, you don't need to write out your will. I mean, you're not going to die. We've got medicines today. We know how to treat rabies. The fellow answered. He said, I'm not writing a will. I'm just jotting down the names of a few people I'd like to bite. An unjustified anger, not just murder, is a sin. But Jesus goes on to describe how this seed of anger can escalate in a heart. He says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You see, anger is like the gasoline you purchase at the pumps. It comes in different grades or octane levels. Anger has various intensities. It reminds me of the father who wanted to warn his hot-tempered son, be careful, son, your anger can escalate. He offered an illustration. The dad picked up the phone and he dialed a random number. He said, can I speak to Melvin? The man on the other end was annoyed by the interruption, uh, but he said there was no Melvin there and uh, hung up the phone. Dad turned to his son and he said, watch this. He redialed the very same number and he said, can I speak to Melvin? Well, this time the guy on the other end, he got mad. He scolded the caller for being so stupid, stupid enough to make the same mistake twice. Dad hung up the phone. He said, now watch this. He called the very same number. This time he said, hi, I'm Melvin. Do I have any messages? Well, you can imagine the explosion that occurred on the other end of the phone. But the dad had proven his point. Anger can escalate. And this is what Jesus proves to us in verse 22. He describes anger's progression. There's a suppressed anger, or what he calls anger without a cause. This is an illicit anger that we hold on to, and that we nurture, and that we let smolder below the surface. Then there's an explosive anger. This is the anger that lashes out. It shouts, Raka, which was Aramaic slang for empty-headed, you idiot. It was an inflammatory insult. 
But that boils over into a premeditated anger. For you fool was more than just an insult. It was a calculated, vengeful attack. It was a character assassination. Once it was a truck driver, drove an 18-wheeler. He stopped at a roadside cafe for lunch. Well, three hell's angels entered the restaurant behind him, and they tried to pick a fight with the man. The trucker, he said nothing. He just quietly finished his lunch, paid his bill, and then he walked out of the diner. One of the tough guys, he laughed. He started mocking the man. He said, that little fella isn't much of a man, is he? The waitress said, nah, he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles in a parking lot. You see, a suppressed anger, it turns explosive and it results in a premeditated attack by an angry trucker. This is what happens when your anger goes unchecked. It picks up steam. It escalates. Listen to the end result of this anger. According to Jesus, you shall be in danger of hellfire. The consequences of an unchecked anger aren't just social and legal, but spiritual and eternal. On June the 9th, 1980, on a hot, steamy night in Miami, Florida, the body of Judy Bucknell was found murdered in her apartment. As it turns out, seven times her estranged boyfriend thrust his knife into Judy's body. Before the man was arrested, the killer had actually written of his anger. He wrote, It starts off as a drip, a small puddle that's easily mopped up so you ignore it. The next time you've got a trickle and so forth, until pretty soon you're toting buckets and wondering how you let it go so far. It's the gradualness of it that gets you, the constant pressure. By the time you realize what's happening, it's too late. It's a strange emotion, this thing called hatred. So what do you do with an anger that has gotten out of control? In fact, here's a better question. What do you do with an anger before it gets out of control? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 23, He says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and here's the first step in dealing with anger, be in the habit of coming to the altar. Worship God. Be a worshiper. Admit how much you need Him. Come before Him. Drink deeply of His love for you. You see, the presence of God has a way of diffusing and disarming our anger. As I've said, God changes our hearts. Verse 23 continues, If you remember that your brother has something against you, now, if you're at the altar and God brings an issue to your mind, an unresolved conflict between you and another person, and I don't think this happens accidentally, it requires that you be concerned for other people, that you don't just care about yourself, but that you care about others. Once there was a rabbi, he was walking down the street, just back from his Torah school, so proud of his religion. He was feeling very pompous when a poor bigger beggar got in his way. The rabbi went into a rage. You raka, how ugly you are. Were all the men of your town as ugly as you? The beggar calmly answered the rabbi. He said, that I do not know. 
But go and tell the Maker who created me how ugly is the creature that He has made. And you see, it's at the altar. It's in God's presence that we learn to see people as God sees them, as special to Him. And when we do, when we see people through God's eyes, we're less likely to be angry. Again, be in the habit of coming to the altar. For real righteousness isn't produced on our own. It happens only when the Holy Spirit pours out the love of Jesus into our hearts. And that happens at the altar. So come to the altar. Be concerned about others. And then leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. It's a mockery for you to come and offer a gift to God when what would really please Him is for you to go and repair the rift between you and your brother. And so verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Life is too short to spend it angry or to spend it with people angry at you. He's telling us to pick up the phone or to send that email or better yet, write that letter. It'll show them that you care. Oh, sure, that person harmed you. But I know, you know, it takes two to tango. It's safe to say you didn't handle it all perfectly either. Thus, you need to humble yourself and go to the person you offended and apologize for your part in the drama. Don't wait on them. You take the initiative and do it today. For Jesus tells us in verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly. As Paul put it, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Keep short accounts. Don't wait another day. There's a Latin proverb, he who goes to bed angry has the devil for a bedfellow. In verse 25, Jesus tells us to deal with our anger before God deals with us. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you are thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And let me say, unresolved anger, it will become a prison in more ways than one. Deal with your anger or it will eat you alive. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy you one penny at a time. You'll lose all your sense before you're through. So be in the habit of coming to the altar. Be concerned for other people, not just yourself. Take the initiative. Humble yourself and apologize. And do it quickly before you have to pay the price. Here's the master's point. Real righteousness is a matter of the heart. So pay attention to your heart, how you love God, and how you love your neighbor. And it's not just anger that he's concerned about. For Jesus says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The same guy who was proud of the fact that he wasn't a murderer was proud that he had been faithful to his wife, but had he really? What is real righteousness? 
I hope we see true righteousness isn't just outward conformity. It's a transformed life. It's a change of heart. A real relationship with God is more than just turning over a new leaf. It's more than just coming to church or doing right things. It's deeper than that. Love burrows its way down into my heart of hearts to the point that it changes how I think and how I feel and even how I see others, even how I see the opposite sex. It's not an act. It's a work of God's Spirit in me. Again, Jesus is saying that we can't be proud that we haven't done the deed when the seed is still lurking inside us. There's an old saying, promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. And it's so true. Certainly now, the deed has, carries with it greater consequences than the seed. I mean, the deed might contract a venereal disease or bust up your home. No other human might know about the seed, but to God, the fruit and the root are one. And Jesus is saying that we can't be content until we're living a righteousness that impacts the root, not just the fruit. Our righteousness, real righteousness, gets down to the heart level. It affects the heart. Notice, just as Jesus says there is a righteous anger, He also says that there is a difference between a look and a lust. He says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. Not every look is necessarily a lust. I mean, there's an innocent look. There's a casual glance. You see a pretty girl, you think, yep, Lord, that's a pretty girl. But then you move on. It's another thing, though, to look to lust. There is the lingering gaze. There is the fixating focus. There is the savoring stare where your pulse rate rises, where your imagination takes the image and processes it for selfish purposes. It reminds me of the two monks standing by the river. A gorgeous young woman approached them and explained she needed to cross a stream. One of the monks, he picks her up, he lays her over his shoulders. He carries her across and sits her down on the other side. She appreciates his kindness, but his friend, his fellow monk, are appalled. Later in the day, his friend rebukes him. He says, as monks, we've taken a vow to never look on a woman, let alone touch her body. At the river today, you did both. The first monk said, my brother, I put that woman down on the other side of the river. You're still carrying her in your mind. Jesus said, don't look at a woman in order to lust after her. And it's not just men who lust after women. There is a housewife who fantasizes about what it would be like to be with a man who cared more about her needs or was more romantic or had more conversation or made more money. Nick Saban has coached the Alabama Crimson Tide to unprecedented success. Recently, Nick asked his wife, Sweetheart, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think we would achieve all of this? His wife, Terry, replied, Honey, I'm sorry. You're not in my wildest dreams. Ladies, real righteousness makes sure that your wildest dreams feature your husband and not some other man. 
Several weeks ago, I dealt with verses 29 and 30, and I talked about four helps in overcoming sexual sin. First, recognize the problem. If your right eye, if your right hand causes you to sin, what's the underlying cause? What is it that, that makes you vulnerable to this temptation? Secondly, identify, recognize the, the problem. Secondly, radically repent. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Take decisive action to distance yourself from that cause. Third, recruit some help. You won't cut it off by yourself. And then fourth, rethink your priorities. A lot is at stake here. It's better to lose a limb than to throw away what really matters. Your family, your integrity, your reputation. I encourage you to go back and listen to that lesson. But here's this morning's point. Real righteousness, it isn't a deed done or moral discipline or religious fervor. It's not some religious badge that I wear on my lapel that I'm proud of. No, it goes deeper. It goes below my lapel. It, it seeps down into my heart. It's God's love in my heart. That's real righteousness. I can play the notes. But do I have the passion? You see, when it came to righteousness, everyone thought that the scribes and the Pharisees had an impressive resume. Everyone that is, except Jesus. He could see straight through their hypocrisy. There was no love in their obedience, no passion in their performance, no emotion in their devotion. Outwardly, all of their ducks were in a row. But inwardly, spiritually, the Pharisees, they were nothing but quacks. That's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness is about love and it's about heart. So let me try this one more time. You might be a Pharisee if you're proud of all that you have done for God, but you haven't asked God to do His work in you. Remember, real righteousness is a miracle. It's a miracle in us. It's the heart of God implanted in our hearts. And so, Father, we ask that you speak to us this morning. Lord, that your Spirit would be poured out upon us today. That we would acknowledge our sins. That we would, Lord, cease being proud of what we've done. Lord, that we would humble ourselves and admit our need and open up our hearts to you. We want your law fulfilled in our hearts. We want to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, with all we've got, we want to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, we can't achieve that through our own efforts. We can't achieve that through our most rigorous discipline. But Lord, we can realize that by opening up our hearts and trusting in Your grace and asking You to come and to work Your love in our hearts. Pour out Your Spirit in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll do just that today. 
that you'll take our, our needy hearts and you'll fill us with your love and you'll begin your work in us. And if there's someone here this morning, Lord, who's never invited you into their heart, they're fighting an uphill battle. There's no way they'll ever enter the kingdom of heaven without real righteousness. Lord, I pray that they would repent of their own self-righteousness today and that they would ask you to be their Savior, to be their Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And, and you know, as we're pausing right now, as we're here in this moment, in the sanctity of this moment, if there's someone here today that would raise their hand and say, Pastor Sandy, I've never invited Jesus into my life, but I want His love in my heart today, and I want His Spirit in my life today, and you'll say, please pray for me. Would you raise your hand? Right where you are, would you raise your hand? Anybody that would say, I'd like for you to pray for me today that I could become a Christian. Would you raise your hand? Anybody? All right, why don't we all stand together?